From Gimlet Media, I'm Alex Bloomberg, and this is Without Fail, the show where I talk to athletes, artists, entrepreneurs, visionaries of all kinds about their successes and their failures and what they've learned from both. Just a quick note at the top, there is some light cursing in this episode. Launching something new takes faith. Faith that the new thing you're launching is something the world needs, that it's calling for, hungry for. And faith that you in particular are the one to deliver it. On today's show, I'm talking to some people who helped launch something based on that kind of faith. Um, my name is uh, Pierre Sutton. I'm Keisha Sutton James. And and how are you guys related? I am his firstborn child by 25 years. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. It is true. She was my first and favorite for, for a very long yeah. time. <laughs> <laughs> Life was lovely. <laughs> The venture Pierre helped launch, and Keisha later helped him build, required making a bet. Two bets, actually. The first bet, that there was an audience for the thing they were launching. And the second bet, that a brand new and completely untested technology would help them reach that audience. And the story of Pierre and Keisha's venture, and how it played a hand in the creation of so much that we see and hear in culture today, it starts back with Pierre's father, Percy Sutton, who was a prominent figure in the civil rights movement in 1960s New York. I'm reminded, as every other Negro must be, in New York, that we're not free. I'm also reminded that as long as a door is closed to a men's waiting room that is marked colored in Jackson, Mississippi, I'm not free to go into Grand Central Station in New York City. Percy was a former Tuskegee Airman, a businessman, a lawyer, he represented Malcolm X, and a politician. He was the Manhattan Borough President for 12 years, which at the time made him the highest-ranking black politician in the entire state of New York. And according to Pierre, Percy was always looking for ways to elevate black voices in the community. He already owned a small newspaper, but one day, Percy learned of an opportunity to buy a local radio station, an AM station, with the call letters WLIB. It was a uh, soul station. Uh-huh. Uh, I like to say that black radio was... Uh, the radio station at the end of the dial. At the end of the dial, it means it's a weak signal. Mm-hmm. Uh, and people who couldn't figure out what to do with their radio stations decided that they would play uh, soul music or race music because they couldn't th- figure out what else to do with the radio station. <laughs> right. so they, that was the term at the time. It was literally called race music. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's right, mm-hmm. race music. And Pierre says owners of these stations didn't believe that black audiences had spending power. And so the owners didn't invest that many resources trying to reach a black audience. WLIB was so small, it didn't even broadcast full time. It went off the air in the evening. And so if you tuned in late at night looking for soul music, you'd hear instead the bleed from this huge superstation out in the Midwest, WOWO, whose signal was so powerful it would colonize other available frequencies on the AM dial, including WLIB at night. When it- Went off the air, you could hear farm equipment being sold uh, out in uh, Fort Wayne, Indiana. But to Percy Sutton, this tiny part-time radio station represented something. It represented the idea of putting a black radio station in the hands of black ownership. To buy the station would cost Percy $1.9 million. So he started to raise money. He tapped prominent community members from his circle, a group of black doctors, lawyers, preachers, teachers. And they ended up investing over $300,000 but that still wouldn't cover the asking price. So they had to get a bank loan for the rest. 
which for a group of black business and community leaders in 1971, wasn't simple. We went to 63 banks to raise the money, and, and they uh, refused. And finally, we got an interview with Chemical Bank, which is long gone. Uh, the, um, one of our shareholders had saved the life of the son of the president of the bank. And so it was through that we were able to get an audience <laughs> with the bank. And they actually gave us the money. That's how it happened. One of your shareholders had saved the life of the son of the bank? Son of the president. Son of the president of the bank. bank. Yeah. Saved him from drowning. He was a camp counselor and had uh, saved the kids from drowning in camp. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah. That's a lot more than, like, putting up some collateral. <laughs> that's, a, like, that's a pretty strict loan requirement. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> you, have just, you have to <laughs> save, save the my life, life of my the son. son of our president. <laughs> wow. And then we'll give you the loan. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> that's a high bar. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, like, that's—Chris Rock has a joke about that, how—about yeah. him being in Alpine, New Jersey, and how, you know, he's this humongous comedian. He's like, all my neighbors are white, and they're dentists. Doctors, like, right. like his point is, for me, I had to be like headlining HBO star, da 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 da. But these white guys, are, they just went to dental school. They just yeah. went to dental school, <laughs> yeah, you exactly. know. But that's the that's the hurdle we yeah. have to, you know, clear. Percy and his team did clear that hurdle. They got the loan and bought the AM station WLIB. For years, it had catered to a small black audience, but was run by white owners. And Percy wanted to do things differently, including how they treated their listeners. We were highly selective in how we put things on air. We uh, were selective in the kind of commercials. Uh, we turned away a lot of money uh, to uh, be pure. No cigarettes, no liquor, you know. Uh-huh. So you would turn, so people would come to you wanting to advertise cigarettes and liquor and you'd said no? No. Yeah. The reason was because you refused to talk down to your community. You know, the purpose was to lift and reflect the com community in a positive way. Yes, yes. Percy also made some pretty radical decisions about the kind of programming that went on the air. He wanted the station to be a place for the community to talk to each other. So he created call-in shows, interview shows, roundtable discussions. Malcolm X's widow, Betty Shabazz, hosted a show. And the discussions were all on issues facing the Black community. Civil rights, Black power, South African apartheid. What Pierre calls the revolution. And, and being a revolutionary in those days was very positive. Uh, you, f you felt good uh, being part of uh, change. I wasn't here for 1968 uh, when um, Malcolm, when he when he died, when he was murdered, and then um, uh, wasn't here for King's assassination. Uh, I was in uh, I was in Vietnam at the time, mm -hmm. so uh, I was uh, more than happy to to, to play a, a small role in in the revolution here in New York. Mm -hmm. uh, and it really does like it sounds like that was something that also was a little bit new in terms of like a radio station being a center of the community in, in that that way. Was that a role that radio had played at least in New York as you were aware? No. no. There weren't any black radio stations before. Right. <laughs> they were the, were the first. Um, black ownership, you say black ownership means a lot because you decide who to hire, who to fire, what to say. It really ultimately becomes your decision. And white folks, it just was not in their best interest to be uh, 
um, revolutionary in that sense. Things in WLIB went well. People tuned in. Percy eventually handed day-to-day operations to his son, Pierre. And it could have gone on like this, with WLIB broadcasting to a small but loyal listenership. But Pierre, he saw a much bigger opportunity. And this is where we get to one of the bets that he made, the bet on technology. You see, there was the option to buy a second station from the same owners, a sister station, you could say. But it wasn't in the AM band. It was in the FM band. And if Pierre was to purchase this FM station, he was essentially placing a bet on this relatively new technology called FM radio. What was FM radio like at this at this moment? There was no FM. FM signals would bounce off the leaves of trees and the sides of buildings. Um, FM is a linear uh, medium. That is, it's line of sight. If it, if it doesn't hit from tower to receiver, uh, you can't get the signal. So you can imagine it being uh, virtually impossible space for um, radio to function in New York. Mm-hmm. Or any city, for that matter. Uh-huh. But there were still FM stations broadcasting. Yep. If you were to tune in, if you happened to be right next to the transmitter, <laughs> what would you hear? <laughs> there would be very little programming on it uh, because there was no money put into it. But there were advantages to FM. For one, it was a totally different way of broadcasting sound over the airwaves, and it allowed for much higher fidelity. AM was scratchy and tinny and only in mono. FM was rich and full and in stereo. None of which mattered, of course, if no one could hear your FM station. The FM station that WLIB's owners were selling was called WBLS, and it mostly played jazz music to a very small audience. To acquire WBLS would cost Pierre $1.1 million. So why did you guys want to spend $1.1 million on this station that nobody had equipment to listen to, it was hard to listen to, and there wasn't any programming on? I met a guy named Mitch Hastings, I hope he's still alive, but uh, he had a metal plate in his head. Uh-huh. He was a radio engineer, and he had something called a circular polarized antenna, mm-hmm. which he put on his radio station in Boston, WBCN, the Boston Concert Network, mm-hmm. so that it could broadcast classical concerts. Mm-hmm. It was sheer genius. And and what this this technology solved was it solved the direct line of sight problem. It like yes. enabled you to pick it up even if you weren't directly next to the... That is correct, yes. Got it. Then he told me about the circular polarized antenna, and I said, no, really? <laughs> you can do what? <laughs> yeah. So I went up to Boston, and um, he uh, showed me how it worked. So you see this. Your mind is blown. What happens next? Well, uh, <laughs> you say, give me one of those. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I yes. Basically, yeah. I want gimme. <laughs> you, know? you know, and he was—he just let me use it at first. I paid him later on. We just um, put that into the um, broadcast chain, mm-hmm. and it just worked. So then, and and is that the point where you're like, oh, maybe we should pick up these FM uh, oh, bands Oh, absolutely. As well? That was the whole idea, yeah. yeah. And, and, and messing around with it in the first place. It was new. It was not, not, not tested, but uh, it was real. After you tested it, you saw it was real. What is your feeling? Uh, elation, but uh, coupled with angst, because... I put one on WBLS, and uh, people were able to get the signal. 
And so uh, the real test is, is what kind of audience can you gather? And this brings us to the second bet that Pierre made, the audience. They'd been able to build a loyal Black audience for the AM station. But here, they were banking on something much, much bigger. Pierre wanted to make something new, a music station, that programmed for Black people not as an afterthought or for something to put on at the end of the dial, but as its main goal. Pierre was betting that if he invested real money in programming for a Black audience, a Black audience would show up and listen. And so he set the new format for the FM station, jazz and soul music, invested in a bunch of on-air talent, and started broadcasting. WBLS-FM, the most exciting sound in the most exciting city. WBLS was live, but the question was, how would it perform? Just like on TV, radio gets ratings, and the company that provides those ratings is called Arbitron. So Pierre and InterCity, they were hoping that Arbitron would show them big numbers. We uh, were anxiously awaiting the results of a of the Arbitron survey, which measured uh, radio listenership. Uh-huh. And the effect was electric. Turns out we had a, a, a great audience, the first book, and then in, uh, three months later, we were number one. The FM station? Uh, yeah. How did that feel? I felt like, uh, really excited, <laughs> really excited. <laughs> what I did then was, uh, uh, if, if this thing works here, there's no reason why it won't work elsewhere. So I started buying, I, I got an opportunity to buy a radio station in Detroit. Mm-hmm. And um, then uh, went to San Francisco, where I bought an AM and an FM station. The FM in Detroit was $1.8 million. I paid $1.8 million for an AM and an FM in San Francisco. By the time I got to the L.A., the word was out. <laughs> and I had to pay $5 million for, for an AM-FM combination. But on the strength of the success of WBLS, I was able to convince the bank to get, you know, lend us more money uh-huh. so we could uh, go on this buying spree. And by then, everyone was looking for an FM station. Everybody, prices just started shooting through the roof on, on FM radio. Inner City Broadcasting was up and running. Pierre was in charge of a network of stations across the country, all programming for black audiences. And the New York station, WBLS, it became the flagship. So w- once it's on the air, it becomes it, pr- it becomes pretty quickly the, the number one station in New York City. Yeah. And because New York is the largest market in the country, if you're the number one in the largest market in the country, you're the number one in the country? Yep. That was true then. I don't know if, if it's true now. So just a couple years after purchasing this FM station, you were the the largest radio station in the country? Looking back on it, I must have been a star. (laughs) (laughs) Frankie! It's him! My idol! Crocker! Frankie Crocker! Just slightly ahead of our time. Frankie Crocker. What a lovely thing to do to a radio. You know, the station was innovative in a number of ways. Frankie Crocker became a legendary um, radio disc jockey. Legendary, Mm -hmm. huge, huge, huge. And um, Frankie was really a poet on the air. May God bless you and take care of you. God willing, we'll check you out tomorrow at four with Frankie Crocker, satin, black satin, the man and his music. Until then, may each of you live as long as you want and never want as long as you live. May each of you live to be a hundred and me a hundred but minus a day. 
so I'll never know that nice people like you have passed away. And don't forget, often imitated, but never quite duplicated. When Frankie Crocker isn't on your radio, your radio isn't really on. Take care and He also just had an incredible ear for music in terms of song selection. Mm -hmm. Um, So the format that he put together, it was an innovation, actually. It it became um, not just soul or or race, which it had been 50s and Mm -hmm. 60s was what we call race music. And um, he coined the term urban to, to articulate the fact that our audience was people from who lived an urban lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Not black, not Puerto Rican, not white, not one or the other, mm-hmm. but kind of all encompassing. And that that urban moniker became obviously a, a, a format name in radio and mm-hmm. then in like everything else. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, so that that was to me an amazing innovation. Um, you know, we used to hear the quiet storm being played on uh, at night. On, nighttime on a lot of black radio stations um and the quiet storm is like sort of slow sort of slow jam so you know slow with a heavy voice yeah yeah heavy voice introducing the music as yeah the voice of god you're listening to the quiet storm on yeah (laughs) right wbls 107.5 the quiet storm Ron Harper is my name. You're just tuning in. And, and that was something yeah, that you like guys that. innovated? <laughs> yeah. Didn't it come Christ. out of D.C., but we we popularized it, right? Uh-huh. I stole it from uh, <laughs> W.H.U.R. Uh, radio. Okay, H.U.R. Yeah, the college. Yeah. Uh, is that the college? Howard University? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I stole uh-huh. it from uh-huh. So you heard that on you heard that on the, on the, I saw on the that college. And I said, "Quiet storm." Hmm, that's a good idea. Let me take that, put that on the radio in New York. <laughs> yes. So every time you hear the quiet storm, you're like, "Ah, oh, that was I, yeah. fa- I found that. I discovered yeah. that." Yeah, that's 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 pretty cool. You know, we had a thing on on WBLS where we the announcer would say, uh, say "WBLS," each letter. Or El Pong from one speaker or another to uh-huh, demonstrate right. the stereo effect. Uh-huh. And we heard that replicated all around the country. Uh, so people, uh, the station owners could say they were broadcasting in stereo. That means it was, it, that was a very big deal. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that ping. You know, this radio station was recorded on little cassette tapes and sent all around the yep. world, yep. all around the world. I mean, I lived in Kenya. I've traveled around the world. And when people find out that our family built this radio station and so forth, they would all say WBL. Like, yeah. <laughs> Coming up after the break, inner city broadcasting goes nationwide. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Welcome back to Without Fail and my conversation with Pierre Sutton and Keisha Sutton-James of Inner City Broadcasting. One of the most famous theaters in Harlem was called the Apollo Theater. During the 1920s and the Harlem Renaissance, it rose to prominence, hosting stars like Ella Fitzgerald and Billie Holiday. It was the place where anyone who was anyone in music, dance, or comedy wanted to perform. 
Huge stars like James Brown, Michael Jackson, Aretha Franklin. They all came through the Apollo. But by the late 70s, it had fallen on hard times. So the Apollo actually had been dark um, for several years. Um, Harlem had been going through a tough time. Someone had actually gotten shot in the theater, which led eventually to it being shut down. The Schiffmans um, owned it. It was the family that owned it. They had been selling off their other um, theaters in Harlem uh, to religious groups, and they turned these theaters into churches. And they were on the verge of doing the same with the Apollo. So the Apollo was one of my grandfather's dreams. Um, And he had this dream of owning the Apollo Theater and having it be like uh, the mecca of black culture and and certainly the mecca of Harlem. And um, he bought the Apollo. The company bought the Apollo. The broadcasting paid for the Apollo. Apollo, exactly. And and it was— what kept those doors open were the uh, dollars coming out of inner city broadcasting. Uh-huh. Amen. Percy had this idea to restore the Apollo Theater to its prominence, a national TV show that would be broadcast from the Apollo Theater. And in 1987, it launched. It's showtime at the Apollo! It's showtime at the Apollo began broadcasting. The show featured both up-and-coming artists and professionals in music and comedy. And it was the place where one of today's most prominent TV personalities got his start on national TV. If you are ready for the whole Apollo experience, ready to show the world what we do, everybody see, yeah! Yeah! Everybody see, yeah! Steve Harvey was the guy who was was a street uh, comedian. Uh, And and then we put him on uh, the stage at the Apollo Theater. He was the host that we used in the... Showtime at the Apollo. By the 1990s, intercity broadcasting had firmly established its place at the center of black cultural life in New York City. And the radio station, BLS, was always at or near the number one spot in New York. But now that Pierre's bet had so clearly paid off, there was a black audience, bigger and more commercially viable than most people had ever imagined. He had to contend with something new, competitors. I remember one day coming back from somewhere. I was out of the country. I came back and I was listening to this radio station play on the uh, on the radio of the cab, and the, and the guy was black that was driving the cab. And then when he came up was uh, to the callers, it was not um, WBLS I was hearing. It was something else. And, Oh my God! I had this is my this is my listener right here. This guy's not listening to it's our radio station. This is horrible. <laughs> what is going on here? So I, you know, I I, I suffered a panic attack, and we and we uh, it turned out that was um, uh, it was KTU, and they played disco twenty four hours a day. Uh-huh. They knocked us out of the number one spot, and that really upset me. And so we went back to the drawing board, and what we simply did was uh, play music that wasn't dance music. Mm-hmm. You know, 180 beats a minute, 24 hours a day. is a little rough on your ears. Uh-huh. Not to mention your heartbeat. Or, you know, <laughs> just not good for the human body. So <laughs> we would uh, we uh, did disco and more. We we uh, had to counter uh-huh. um, then with disco and more. It's here. It's now. Disco. And we became number one again. Uh-huh. Uh, and who, what, what finally knocked you out of number one permanently? Oh, uh, permanent uh, competition. Uh-huh. 
there are 70 or so radios, about 70 radio stations in New York. Uh-huh. When you're in competition with uh, two other radio stations, uh-huh. one uh buying for your older audience another buying for your younger audience and it, it just uh, becomes untenable you just the black, the black community isn't that big uh, it's big but not that big and so um by virtue of having competition uh-huh. that just take takes away your audience but also music changed um meaning formats so whereas a beyonce would have exclusively been our artist Back in the day, she became a pop artist, and so the pop station started started to play black artists more and more than than they had, right? And and same by the same t- token, the record labels started shutting down their urban um, labels um, and just kind of absorbing the urban or the black artists into their pop labels, and black became less of a thing. By the mid-2000s, Keisha, who'd been working for seven years as a banker on Wall Street, decided to come and work in the family business. She joined Inner City Broadcasting, which, despite all the changes in the industry, was still doing quite well. We had syndicated Wendy Williams. We were syndicating um, Steve Harvey, which was, his show was number I don't remember what the rating was, but it was a very high rating. Yeah. You know, that was a great financial success. 2007, I think, was our biggest year ever. Um, As a company. Yeah. Can Can you characterize, like, so you bought the you bought the stations for a total of, like, you know, a couple million dollars in the beginning. By the, by the height, what were you guys bringing in in revenue overall? Uh, several times that which we paid for. <laughs> uh, tens of millions of dollars we were making in, in uh-huh. a year. And that's revenue or th- that no, that's, that's profit? That's, that's uh, revenue. Uh-huh, mm-hmm. right. Radio is famous for being able to throw uh, more than half of its revenue to the bottom line. Yeah, there's not that many operating costs to radio. Yeah, so if you can get an audience and you can get a lot of people listening, then you're... Right. So 2007, it's your, it's your biggest year. You're bringing in tens of millions of dollars in revenue. It's a, you're, you're in the famously high-margin, low-cost business. Um, things are looking great. And then just a couple of years later, you end up filing for bankruptcy, right? So so what, what happened? Uh, shit happened. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of shit. <laughs> After the break, shit happens. Welcome back to Without Fail and my conversation with Pierre Sutton and Keisha Sutton-James. In 2007, inner-city broadcasting had its best year ever. And then, as we just heard, shit happened. Specifically, this shit. Breaking news here. Stocks all around the world are tanking because of the crisis on Wall Street. The Dow tumbled more than 500 points after two pillars of the street tumbled over the weekend. Lehman Brothers, a 158-year-old firm, filed for bankruptcy. The signs were everywhere, but now it's official we are in a recession. We managed to find ourselves into a uh, recession. The nation suffered a recession. Yeah, I remember. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was pretty it bad. Was pretty, it was a pretty bad recession. 2008. Uh, and, the next Great Depression almost happened. And it was yeah. when uh, the country suffers a recession, the black community suffers a, a depression. And quite literally, we, um, we had a perfect storm. We had the recession, mm-hmm. which is bad all around. 
Um, and it hit uh, many of our advertisers, black banks, insurance companies, black uh, auto dealers. A good part of our advertising disappeared. And so that happened. And then it got worse for inner-city broadcasting. Arbitron, the ratings company that measures radio audience, they changed the way they counted listeners. And that change, Arbitron later acknowledged, led to a significant undercount of Black audiences. Which had devastating effects on us and Uh and Black broadcasters around the country. Basically, this change showed up... In our ratings. In your ratings. It it cut uh, advertising uh, on our radio station by half. Half. On all radio stations, half overnight. Uh-huh. So that uh, that put us in a very difficult position with respect to the banks. Right. And the other factor in this perfect storm was that now because the revenue um, could not sustain the amount of debt that we had, now we're in a position where we have to restructure our credit in 2009 and our stations are not worth what they need to be worth in order for us to come up with a good deal. Uh, And we were working with Goldman and GE, and then they sold the credit to um, private equity funds and a hedge fund, and they immediately moved to foreclose on the assets and and then flipped them. When 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 did this go down? Uh, it started in 2009, and we went into bankruptcy in May, June 2010, and we closed in October of 2012. Everything is gone. It took everything. Uh, these people came in in the middle of the night and took the art that was off the walls. We had number of African-American uh, master's arts on the walls at the, at the radio facility. And they came in one night and, and stole the art off the walls. You talk about the, the culture. It, it's, it's just utter disrespect for, uh, for us and our culture. Uh, they stole the art off the walls. We had to fight them in court to get it back. That's, that's the kind of... Um, people that we were dealing with here. I, I could not believe that they that these two uh huge banks, I mean they uh they uh, our credit meant nothing in the scheme of their yeah. you know their, their portfolio. Uh why would they just uh let it go like that? Why would they just put us out of business like that? It's just uh it still baffles me as to uh I'm fairly I, Fail to come up with a reason for them having to fail fail uh, us. Yeah. Uh, why did they do that? I just don't know. Uh, we could have weathered that storm as the as those radio stations had weathered the storm, but instead, uh, uh, simply sold us down the river. It was an incredibly dark time. Right. It does become baffling when you hit the worst part in your company's history. You know. Um, how your partner in that, right? You'd like to think, at least they, they talk about a partnership and growing partnership and la, 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 uh-huh. how it's possible to walk away from their, quote, partner in that moment. Um, and it still is pretty hard to live with. And I speak as someone who is the third generation in this 
This was his life's work, 40 years, came home from Vietnam and built this company for 40 years. And I felt completely gutted by it. I honestly can't imagine how you, Dad, um, the heartache you must experience um, to this day. I, I can't describe it, so let's yeah. move on. I just can't describe it. <laughs> yeah, no, I can't. It, it, yeah. It was ugly. You know, the reason, again, that they went into the business was to be able to impact our communities in a positive way, authentically, through our lens, through our um, um, viewpoint. Like, this business is not just a business to make money. It, this business was for impacting our community. Something that comes up a lot on this podcast and that I think about a lot is just sort of like, most successful businesses are never just business. They're always something else, right? There's always some element of art. There's always some element of community. There's always some, some element of, of, of mission to it. Heart. Heart, right? Like, I think to launch a successful business, that's especially important. Like, you have to have something. Or it seems like you have to have something else. And then when things are in crisis, everything else gets stripped away. And it's just the business part that's left. And I think that it sounds like what you're saying is that that, that process was just like after having run this thing for so many decades as like business plus, then to just have it just purely financial and and just everything else stripped away and not valued at all. I, I can I can understand how that'd be heartbreaking. Yeah. That was really hard for me to wrap my mind around. It still yeah. feels yeah. like betrayal. We know now what it looks like, what it's supposed to look like, uh, what radio broadcasting to the black community uh, is supposed to look like. And I don't know how much you're going to see of that in the future because black radio, for the most part, is not owned by black people. Mm -hmm. And so um, I don't know uh, how much of that heart that Keisha speaks of will ever be seen. I don't know if it, if it will ever be seen again. Well, so you were talking about like the competition, the rise in competition, and you were talking about like how that was wasn't just from other black radio stations, but now was from top 40 stations and pop music stations. And that like now the fact that you have Beyonce and Jay-Z and like they are the most popular performers in the world. Do you think you guys had something to do with that? Yeah, I mean, the fact is that these artists, uh, Beyonce, when she came from Destiny's Child, she came through black radio. Like I... I I don't, I'm not saying it would, may not have happened were it not for BLS, but obviously we all know that Beyonce has a work ethic that is beyond pretty much anybody right. on the planet. <laughs> like, so regardless, taking as a granted, it that would, she's, a, she's not that she's like beyond human. Yes, right. she would yeah, not just be yeah, singing. Yeah. Force of nature. Yes, she really is a force of nature. But the fact is that you know a combination of a whole lot of factors, including. The exposure through black radio, you know, is, has led to, you know, that which she has become. I don't know. I, I will claim the little bit of a factor that black radio was for her and, um, and for so many other artists. I think with demonstrating that the commercial prowess demonstrating the widespread appeal, demonstrating that, like, the number one station in New York, right, is 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 a black station. Did that have something to do with the place where we are today? That, like, 
black culture becoming maybe I'm reaching too far, but I but I but I wonder if that's something that you think a, about. A lodestar? Yeah. I think so. I, I think so. And that wraps up my conversation with Pierre Sutton and Keisha Sutton James. Thanks to both of them for coming on the show. Without Fail is hosted by me and produced by Molly Messick and Sarah Platt. It's edited by me and Devin Taylor. Peter Leonard mixed the episode, theme and ad music by Bobby Lord. Additional music by Peter Leonard. Special thanks to Ellis Feaster for his recordings of WBLS and DJ Frankie Crocker. And you know what? I love our theme song, but I'm feeling something different right now. That's better. If you haven't subscribed without fail, do it now. Review and rate us. It really helps. Thanks so much for listening. And remember, if Alex Bloomberg isn't on your podcast, then your podcast isn't really on. Take care and ciao.